0: So this is David Leibovitz, and I'm back here with an episode of my podcast. And if you want to find me online, I'm at David davidleibovitz, that's L-E-B-O-V-I-T-Z dot substack dot com. So my newsletter, you can find me there. You can sign up for my podcast there as well, or follow me in the Apple Podcast Store, subscribe, or just stop by and listen whenever you feel like it. So today's guest is somebody who I've known I think, ooh, I'm saying the late nineties It's Susan Friedland, Susan's rolling her eyes, but it was so early. You're... I think it was the late nineties and Susan was a cookbook editor and this word gets thrown around a lot, words like legend and so forth. To me, a lot of cookbook editors are legacy people because it's publishing and they leave a book behind. I'm a, like, I have this legacy of recipes I leave. I left nine books behind me which i'm still working with and so far. <laughs> but a cookbook editor worked with different kinds of authors on different subjects different things there's a lot that goes into writing marketing a cookbook selling a cookbook what sells what doesn't it's not just someone's got some great recipes let's publish them so i thought we would talk to susan today like i said i've known susan since the 90s I'm just going to throw that out there, late 90s. Susan published my first two books, Room for Dessert and Ripe for Dessert, and has published a lot of other people, including Alice Waters, Trisha Wells, Richard Olney, Paula Wolfert, Nick Malgeri, and probably a few others I'm missing. Marcella Hazan. Marcella Hazan, I didn't write her down.
1: And some unknowns who actually paid the bills...
0: Well, there was one author. I, it was funny when I was when I asked you to be on the podcast. I was thinking. I remember when you published a Joyce White's book. Oh, um,
1: I love that book. Yeah, Brown Sugar.
0: Brown Sugar, and then there was Brown Sugar Baking. Was it? I only did one book with Joyce. Okay, but it was a it was published in like 2005, I think. And this is it's
1: right there. We could check. Okay,
0: <laughs> we're in Susan's apartment. We're surrounded by cookbooks she's amassed over the years here in New York, but. That was a little before its time. A lot of people weren't publishing authors of color, Black authors. Um, There's been a lot of talk lately about people parachuting in and people who aren't part of the culture. You know, Mexican food is being written, and Asian food and so forth. So you were sort of ahead of the curve there with her.
1: Yes. Some agent, who I can't remember now, um, sent me her proposal. She was the food editor, I think, at Essence, Mm -hmm. Ebony, or one of the black magazines, Uh and it just immediately resonated that I have to do this book, so.
0: And at the time, like, people, I mean, I don't remember what was selling in 2000, 2005. It might have been, like, lifestyle books, like the... those men who no. lived in the Hamptons, Lee Bailey. Oh, Lee, Lee Bailey. Bailey was even earlier.
1: He was the I 80s. F
0: Lee Bailey. Lee Bailey.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee okay. Bailey was the eighties. There was a whole bunch of them that Potter did at Clarkson, Clarkson Potter. And Potter. Now part of uh, Penguin Viking Random House, and they were enormously successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say, I never did those books.
0: Okay. Well, how long you? How long did you work as a cookbook editor? If you don't mind my.
1: I'd certainly I certainly don't. I a... probably worked twenty five years as a cookbook editor. Okay, because oh.
0: a lot of people think, okay, I've got some really good recipes, or oh, you're you make you know I've gone to dinner party, people go, oh, you're such a good cook. You should write a cookbook, telling the person first of all, what does a cookbook editor do? Because an author writes the book, but
1: okay, the editor's first job mm-hmm. is as a gatekeeper. Okay, the Proposals come in to the editor and he or she has got to decide the value of the proposal and if she or he can sell it to the powers that be because the editor does not have a blank check to buy every whim that comes across her desk.
0: Well, I remember editors would always say, well, we have to send it to the people upstairs, the marketing
1: people. Well, the first one, the one who really mattered to me, was the trade publisher. Trade books are those books that you buy in bookstores, mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, say, textbooks.
0: Okay, is that's like a cookbook is a trade. It's cookbook. a trade book. Okay. yeah. and that's is the days too before Amazon, when
1: uh, Amazon was just when I got to Harbour, because I I worked at a division of Simon and Schuster before that. Amazon was. Coming on strong mm-hmm. and getting a lot of enemies in the publishing business.
0: Yes. I remember my publisher was yeah. not happy about yeah. 10-speed price.
1: We never happy about <laughs> Amazon. But that's a different story. Uh, don't we have egg on our faces?
0: Well, you know, as an author, for me, I remember going on book tour or something. This is, you know, in the 90s or in the 2000s, I guess you'd say. And people would say, oh, I really wanted to buy your book, but I can't find it. Because bookstores, well, you know, cookbooks come out in the fall and the spring. And bookstores have to figure out which books they carry and they could only carry like one or two, copies. you know, unless you're in a garden, they're not going to buy hundred copies of David Leibvitz's book, unfortunately. So when they sell the books, they don't often, you know, and, and then the next season comes along and so well, Amazon's kind of changed the
1: game. A little inside information. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Borders at the time. I mean, there were several big chain Crown books. Would buy more books than they could possibly sell. Mm-hmm. And we would have to cut their orders okay. because publishing is essentially a consignment business mm-hmm. and you can return unsold books. Right.
0: The bookstore, not customers. Well, now with Amazon, you can. But in every bookstore,
1: independent or chain or Amazon can return books within six months for what they paid. Okay. So that's the very- Which is about half price. Definition of consignment. Okay. So that they would order, you know, 5,000 books. They'd send back 4,900 of them. Mm-hmm. And we'd be stuck with them in our warehouse.
0: Okay. So getting back to being an editor. So Sorry. No, it's okay. So the first thing is you're a gatekeeper. You're a gatekeeper. You've so. an author-
1: you read a proposal, because it's usually a proposal, and you think, oh, this is really interesting.
0: Like what makes, like I said, you publish like Nick Malgeri, Patricia Wells, Alice Waters, March, very different people.
1: Well, Nick, I felt, had not been published well before. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, we can make this guy's oh. career. And we helped. Patricia Wells was already established. She had a good reputation she was a really good seller she works hard she works very hard and why not if you have the opportunity buy patricia well this is mm-hmm. i mean basically for the for the stars for the famous people
0: mm-hmm. but uh, like somebody uh, so somebody told me that paula wolfer and I, this is not meant to be a criticism or anything but her books were not very big sellers but And I think I heard this about you, but that you felt that the books had to be published because they were so important.
1: They were important. They were important. And Paula was an old friend of mine. I mean, before I published her, she was a friend. And when I got to Harper, she was a house author. Fran McCullough had essentially started her.
0: Her son Ah. designed my first blog.
1: Ah, (laughs) so, you know, Paula, Paula was not, she was a no-brainer. She talked about working hard. But her books, no, did not sell as well as we'd hoped.
0: Yeah. And I don't mean, like, once again, I just want to say, I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just... It's a criticism of the
1: yeah. market rather than of the author.
0: Well, she wrote a book on couscous, and it's a very niche market. That's her bestseller. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. But, you know, she's a legend. She's a... You know.
1: She is the hardest worker I ever encountered. Uh, what about me? <laughs> uh, sorry the second hearted uh, that's okay you know she'd go off on those expeditions to the back of beyond and, you know talk to some peasant Paula said she spoke you know 200 languages but only essentially recipe food. language
0: so one thing that's interesting over the course of the last few years in the food world there's been a lot of talk about women women chefs how women are there's not a lot of Women represented in the food world. I mean, that's changed now more women chefs. Like in France, especially whenever there's a chef festival, it's a lot of men. It's usually 99% men and there's a woman they put in the front. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it, you know, they're, they're getting there, shall we say. But I've always found the food world, like the food writing world to be dominated in a good way by women. Like all the editors that I knew. I would say 99% were women. What is it about? Why is that? And I think at the great magazine editors. Too.
1: Uh, uh, food has always been marginalized. It's always okay. been the woman's page.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> true. I never thought of that. It's, is that funny? I never thought right.
1: of that. It's never been, you know, it's not there, up there with hard news because mm-hmm. that's men's work. Yeah. Uh, but cooking, wedding announcements, that's women's okay. work.
0: That's okay.
1: Betty Crocker, you know, okay. when oh. I was a senior in high school, I had to take a Betty Crocker scholarship exam.
0: I bet that was interesting, though.
1: I was yeah. mixed.
0: <laughs> like, I, I wish I had taken home ec classes because.
1: Oh, wait, I never had to take a home ec class. I don't know why I had to take this exam.
0: Oh, well, I took wood shop and metal shop and print shop, which was interesting, but I was like, I should I mention, like I did
1: not get a Betty Crocker scholarship. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> However, yeah, it's and it's still it's a little bit less so, mm-hmm. but food is still marginalized in many as
0: women's public okay
1: publications. Yeah,
0: okay. I did. It's funny. I just never occurred to me, but like everyone in my publisher who I deal with is a woman, like the publicist. So but the publisher is right. a man. Yes, and that's.
1: He makes more than all of them combined. Do you think so? Yes.
0: Okay. i have to <laughs> ask him about that. But he's very women-friendly. That That is interesting.
1: That's a little bit patronizing, David. Okay.
0: Well, no, you're right. We'll, we'll have that <laughs> deleted. No, I mean, I like having a discussion like this because actually you learn, and it didn't occur to me that that was the situation. And what's interesting in the cookbook world, though, is the women, once again, are the top cookbook sellers in the world, like Ina Garten, Reed Drummond, now it's half baked harvest this year.
1: You're you're more up on these things than I am. I assume it's because men have gone on to more lucrative mm-hmm. <laughs> endeavors.
0: I guess so. I don't know. You know
1: you're not gonna get I mean <laughs> you can get rich writing cookbooks, mm-hmm. but maybe one percent
0: to do. Exactly. A lot of people don't realize that cookbook writing is not lucrative. It's
1: You know, how long can you live on $100,000? Yeah.
0: Well, people don't realize when you get $100,000, let's say someone gets $100,000, like an author, you know, 15% goes to the taxes. The agent gets 15%. 15%. You've got expenses. You've got...
1: You have to pay for the photographs if you want photographs. Yeah.
0: And I remember my photos in my first two books, it was before digital, that was $30,000. Right. And I'm just,
1: I don't remember what we paid you, but I'm sure you didn't walk away rich.
0: No. I mean, I was happy to like right. the job. You know, you gave me a great opportunity. Yeah. You were my first publisher and it wasn't a lot of money, but no one writes cookbooks for the money.
1: I don't think. I think some people think they they might okay. uh, be doing it for the money, but they would be misguided. Okay. Um, <laughs> so
0: you would find people and you bring them in and you're the editor. So. Your job is to oversee them?
1: So to just quickly go through the process, I get a proposal. I think this is really interesting. This is not the stars. Uh-huh. This is not Marcella Hazan. Right. This is Joyce White. Oh. And I think this is a really has a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. I then have to do something called the p which is a profit and loss statement. And in order to get this thing to work, you, of course, you have to, it's pure fantasy, you have to find a comparable title or five comparable mm-hmm. titles, and you don't pick titles that have been failures. You right. pick titles right. that have been
0: like if somebody wants to write a book with like a hundred recipes for snails, you have to find like okay, has someone done this before? Is it exactly. gonna make money? Is exactly. this gonna yeah.
1: so you do this P and L? You have to talk to the sales department, then you have to fight with them. Um... You talk to the marketing department, mm-hmm. you talk to the publicity department, but basically the person you have to convince is the boss. Okay. The publisher.
0: The man. The man. So all the women do all the work That's, and they have to present it to the
1: man. And I had a great <laughs> publisher. We were on similar wavelengths. I remember once coming in, it was around Christmas time, uh-huh. and I saw all these people on the subway <laughs> with these little boxes. hmm And there was an editorial meeting that day. And I said, so how many people do you think are on the subway this morning? I saw all these people with little boxes in their hands. How many of them do you think were filled with (laughs) fruitcakes? Let's do a fruitcake book. Okay. Immediately the publisher thought, what a good idea that is. And did you publish it? I did. I got Moira Hodgson to write it because she's British. And I thought if there's any interviews... Should what, be sound good.
0: One thing you told me once, and I'll never forget this story. You said somebody sent, sent you a proposal with like some muffins or some cookies. And they were also- Yeah. And you went into the staff break room and they were all in the garbage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's true. I, when I started writing cookbooks, I remember my agent, Fred Hill, said to me, you know what? If a book has one good recipe in it, it's worthwhile. And, Maybe well, to him. Well, to me, a good, like I have a couple cookbooks and I make one recipe from, and it's great. And when I went to 10 Speed, I moved over to 10 Speed Press. The editor at the time, Lorena Jones, oh. said to me, well, we like you because your recipes work. And I was new to the recipe writing world. And I said, well, don't all recipes work? <laughs> they were all like, ha, ha, ha. And it wasn't,
1: they weren't talking about their books necessarily. but Now, all recipes don't work. I know. I would test the recipes. At home? At home. No, only the ones that made me suspicious. Okay. I never would test every recipe in a book. That's not my job. Yeah,
0: People don't realize that. One of the things in a cookbook author's contract, it says you are responsible. The author, because publishers can't send the book to a tester and test all the recipes.
1: One of the other things that the editor is in charge of is the design. Mm-hmm. There is a design department, Yes, but the editor has to bring ideas to the designer. Mm-hmm. And I was always very kind of uppity about photographs uh-huh. because I thought nothing will date a book like photographs. And I right. was right.
0: <laughs> that, that's true, and a lot of people don't realize that. On the other hand, if you look at like Christopher Hershimer, who was the photographer mm-hmm. for Savoir magazine, for example, in for thirty—she was yes. this thirty years ago—you look at her pictures now, and they still look contemporary, as they're not. Few
1: photographers do yeah. still look contemporary, but you look at some books and you think, "Oh my God, what were they thinking?" So I tried, very first of all. It was less expensive to do books without photographs. Yes.
0: People don't realize that. People say to me all the time, we want more photos and books. I'm like, well, then you get less recipe because a book is slotted. It's when well, people, when you buy a book, there's a size, how many books fit in the box. And, then and you also, change that. it's
1: the size that will be accommodated on the presses. Mm-hmm. You can't have an unusual trim size. Or you have to go to some kind of custom press and charge. And I remember I used to say, because finally, the book gets edited and copy edited and proofreaded, and printed and bound. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the sales reps have come back with, you know, a thousand pre-orders for this book, which is very low. Mm-hmm. And I would think to myself, well, let's see. Let's charge $100 for this book. See how yeah. that flies. Yeah. A <laughs> like I said,
0: you know, one the photos... It used to be when I started writing cookbooks, I remember they said to me, plan on a thousand dollars per photo for the photographer, for the food stylist, for the prop stylist, you know, and these people have assistants and so forth. And they said, plan on two to three pictures a day because it's really painstaking and you don't realize it. So when you get a proposal, the author's writing their book, they're at home, writing their hundred recipes for snails, you know, and then they turn it in. Let's, let's make something more, uh, anchovy recipe. hairs
1: was the yeah. one I always thought about.
0: Anchovy hair?
1: Anchovy hairs, you know, a oh, hundred things to do little... with anchovy. Okay.
0: Well, I just, I got a book about anchovies recently, a cookbook. So let's say a book about anchovies comes your way. A lot of people, and this happens a lot to authors. I hear this a lot. They go, well, I turned in like this, I gave them like 50% more recipes than they asked for. And they were like, they weren't happy. And I'm like, well, that's because it's a lot of work for them to trim those down.
1: <laughs> They're not happy because they have done their projections, yeah. based on 238 pages, yeah, not 300 pages. Yes, yeah. and that just sends the costs off off the ramp.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to. We did that with Drinking French. I wrote to my publisher in the middle. I said, this is actually turning out to be a bigger book than I thought. It needs more space. And they were like, okay, because I work with Ten Speed, and you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't an egotistical decision. I wasn't saying I need more room. You know, it's like the story needs more than just a cursory. And they changed the st- size of the book and so forth, and we talked about it. But it was early in the process. You're
1: a known quantity,
0: mm-hmm. but they also like me because,
1: <laughs> <they like> <laughs> yeah. of course, everybody else does. But there was, I would have said the same. Mm-hmm. If I could make the numbers work. Yeah. People think, you know, I'm sitting there, some kind of mean person turning down their books. Right. I got numbers that I have to justify. I'm not there with this blank checkbook.
0: So when you get like a book, let's say somebody turns in their book proposal to you. Their is, book or their proposal? The, oh, their book, sorry. Um, the book is done. They turn it in to you. So what is the editor's job at this point?
1: To make sure it's coherent.
0: Okay, and that means?
1: That means, I don't want to name any names, but somebody who actually won a James Beard and an IACP award for best book of the year, Oh, the book came to me a mess. Uh I was stunned Mm -hmm. by this person with a really strong reputation would have turned in this sloppy book. Turns out, you know, she just had a baby who was born with a heart defect. She was legitimately distracted. Mm-hmm. I spawned the book for a year, I gave her some guidance. Mm-hmm. She did a magnificent job, and it won all these awards. So the editor's job is to create a coherent book and to give guidance to authors. I think this organization's clumsy. I think you don't need this chapter. This is repetitive. I mean, you've been through yeah. this, you know.
0: Well, this <laughs> is for people because they don't understand what goes into a book. And I remember reading Richard Olney's book and he thanked you in the introduction or the acknowledgements. He says something like, and thanks to Susan Friedland for her judicious use or her I use know. of the red pencil.
1: He was he is was a really skilled writer
0: to me he was the best uh, I, really the best
1: i mean write. i had two or three authors who just you know for the sake of space hmm. you'd have to take a line off a page yeah and i couldn't find it because they were such tight good writers
0: yeah, but that that's something that happens. A lot of people don't know about when a book is in production, you know, the recipes are all laid out on pages and then the editor or whoever, the editor's assistant breaks the bad news. They're like, you need to remove seven words or three sentences from this page to make it fit. And they call I the never widows.
1: gave that back to the author to do. I would do that.
0: Okay, well, I've had, usually the editor says to me, like, we need to, can you cut? And you're looking at a recipe and, you know, every word... It's important. Usually you think, you told me, you gave me really good advice once. I'll never, I still think about this a lot. You said the worst thing you can do is waste somebody's time. So I think when you write a recipe, when I write a recipe, I try to make every word count. If I'm going to say something, and I tend to be wordier than maybe other people, but like Dory Greenspan, she tends to be wordy as well, because she's telling you, okay, now if the batter curdles, don't worry about it. Or, you know, you might think this is a lot amount, a lot of eggs, but you know, don't worry. It's going to be rise gloriously, but still you have to remove those words. And you're
1: just like, oh my God, what do I do? I rarely sent it back to the author for that. But as I say, there were two or three authors, you know, I was just stymied Mm -hmm. because they were such good, tight writers. But you can't have a page with three words on it. Right. So well, yeah. <laughs> I'd have to find the words, took time. Uh.
0: What well, is interesting how Ina Garten, like her thing is have a picture and have the recipe on one page. Yeah. And all the ingredients have to be available at the supermarket. Everything's well tested. You know, all her recipes are sterling. But she does it in very few. And even like magazines in the old days, we had Gourmet, and Bon Appetit, they had these amazing test kitchens. And you once told me, you said, the best cookbook I have is the gourmet cookbook. I
1: still love it. And as I'm culling and giving away cookbooks and selling mm-hmm. them and begging people to take them, mm-hmm. I refuse to give up those two gourmet cookbooks.
0: Yeah. And that was when they had the Sterling Test Kitchen. That's right. You just, you know, Zan was... The-
1: and those wonderful, you know, those, you know, Zan and Jane Lear and, and she- Kempi who ran the test kitchen. I mean... These they- women,
0: yeah. Women. There were
1: women, and it was a man who closed them down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a man who was in charge of everything. Was it a man? Yeah. Was oh, he who- the one who made the decision? Yes. Yes. Okay. <sighs> there's a lot to it Maybe I'll get Ruth on someday and we'll talk to her. <laughs> she, has, she has a lot to add, I think. So what you're calling your books, and I'm sitting in here in your apartment right now, and I'm actually, there's a whole lifetime of cookbooks surrounding us. And every time I come here, I just... I, I Sometimes I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at all the books because I'm seeing all these Richard Olney and Madeline Kamen books, LaRousse, Old Joy of Cooking, but a lot of obtuse books as well. It looks like, it, I don't want to give people that wrong impression, but it looks like you're culling down to a lot of books like Joy of Cooking, Fanny Farmer. I just
1: haven't gotten over the
0: Gourmet. Okay. Because it seems like you're you're getting rid of a lot of these specialty books.
1: I've, I have never in my life used Joy of Cooking or Fanny Farmer. Okay. Or The Settlement Cookbook.
0: Okay, you have three Joy of Cooking.
1: Well, Maria was a friend. um, Oh,
0: okay, that's a story. And
1: so she kept giving me all these editions of The Gourmet Cookbook um, would asked for advice about
0: For people who don't know, Maria Guarnaschelli was a legendary editor. She had quite a reputation in the food world. She was extremely tough on certain authors. And she was hired to do this 19, what what year was it? The Joy of Cooking?
1: I Well, it was published initially, I think, in the 20s, but she was hired to do one of the renovations. Yeah, and it
0: was kind of a disaster. I remember the Wall Street Journal wrote an article and she talked about the people she was firing or something and she hadn't told them yet. And it's just like, ooh, la la, so.
1: It was a difficult process. So that's okay. why I have all those joys of cooking. Well, the new edition's great. They're going. They're all going. Okay. I just can't fit them all in my shopping cart to get them over yeah. the house. And
0: okay. Well, you're now you're giving them to thrift store, which is great. You know, other people. I like to hand off cookbooks.
1: To Me too. And But there are a lot of specialty books. There are, you know, books that I I haven't
0: opened. Mm-hmm. I mean. Well, I used to read cookbooks, like books. I yeah. would bring and I, you know, when I was cooking professionally, I would just look at like Flo Breaker's book. I would pick it up and read it. She wrote The Simple Art of Perfect- She was on cooking. my
1: baby list. <laughs> okay. But
0: well, she was like, you know, I always said when they clone people, they should start with her because she was probably the nicest person I've ever lovely. met. And she wrote these amazing baking books. She was this very upscale. And I don't, you know, a woman, or she was at home wearing her diamond rings in this Palo Alto <laughs> house. The loveliest person you could ever meet, just charming. She wrote these great baking books. So if you had to pick three books out of all your calling your books, tell me three that you would never get rid of or that you don't want to.
1: Well, the Gourmet Cookbook, because I keep going to it to okay, find oh, things that's to cook. Okay, that's one.
0: Okay, that's one.
1: I'm, I have an attachment to some of the books that I published. Mm-hmm. I, I really would not want to get rid of them. Okay, um, name a few. Danny Myers and Michael Romano's books, okay, Union uh,
0: Square Cafe, Union
1: Square Cafe, and Second Helpings from Union Square Cafe. Marcella Hazan, Paula Wolfert. I keep looking at her books and think, oh, it's too hard to. Did get you rid
0: publish of... the World of Food? Yes, because people love. I was reading something. It was something about food writing, actually, and everyone was talking. People were talking about that book. Like,
1: I inherited that. Book. Fran had bought it, Okay, and it came to me when, when she left Harper.
0: Okay, because that's a great, it's not like a single theme book. We
1: couldn't think of a title. We, I mean, there were so many things about that book. But there are certain books, it's not that I use them, but I do have a kind of sentimental attachment mm-hmm. to them.
0: So now that you're retired, yes. you've, you're actually still very active. You... I don't know if I can talk about this. You have a knitting group. You told me, <laughs> and you you talked. You said we're and you said to me, and we're not just a bunch of ladies sitting around knitting. or you know, there's other couple editors have
1: knitting. You know, the pandemic yeah. and other changes has kind of put the knitting group on hold. Oh, but it's true. It was a bunch of publishing women, and we'd sit around and bitch essentially. But
0: so what? Like, there's been a lot of trends the last, especially the last, I think the internet sort of fostered a lot of trends, especially social media or whatever, videos and so forth. What kind of trends have annoyed you in the last few
1: years? I can't stand these people screaming at me um, from their video channel.
0: Okay. YouTube videos.
1: The YouTube videos, wherever they are, even on Instagram, I think, ah, Uh you know, I have to shut them off. It's everybody is yelling.
0: I um, think that's the way, maybe, to get noticed. I guess nowadays I, there's so much shouting at the shout louder.
1: I, I shut them right off
0: because I'm learning in France. Like I don't think I have finished a sentence since I've lived there <laughs> because everyone's always cutting me off. So <laughs> I start talking, just I keep talking, and I get louder. And it's like, why are you doing that? Because I'm like, I want to finish a sentence just once. <laughs> so the video, what? But about food though, like there's been a lot of fermentation yes thick, sandy uh, sandy
1: uh preserving
0: and anything bothers Katz, yeah,
1: Sandy cats joe cats yes sandy cats um started this niche of uh you know fermentation it's fine if people want to write about fermentation or if people want to cook bones or i mean i don't mm-hmm. but
0: if you were publishing right now, like what would you want to publish? What would you want to be? What kind of books would you want to be publishing now?
1: Unfortunately, I'd probably want to be publishing the same books I published then,
0: okay, which, which
1: were kind of a bunch of high minded, eclectic. I mean, I've always had a strong affinity for France and French food. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learned to cook with junior Child, I did not learn to cook at home. Mm-hmm. And it was all about technique. Mm-hmm. And I always felt Italian food was about shopping and French food is about cooking. Yeah, uh, technique.
0: But you yeah. were also, you published, I think all of the shape and Did you publish the first one? No. Okay.
1: Random House did those. I did uh, three or four Alice's books. And may I say three or four of her best books.
0: Oh, uh, well, they were, I mean, those are the books that I use a lot. Yeah. The vegetable book I use a lot.
1: Vegetable fruit.
0: Yeah. The, the cafe book. Yeah, the cafe book was great. You didn't do Paul Bertoli's book, did you? Oh, no. Okay, that's a great book.
1: It's a wonderful book. I think he's a genius. Mm -hmm. And I got a proposal that was barely half a page. And I called the agent. I said, listen, I'm devoted to Paul, but I can't do anything with this half-page babble. Well, she said, that's all you're getting. So I said, well, you're going to have to sell it to somebody else. And years later, Paul said, I was so disappointed. I was sure you were going to buy my book.
0: I oh, well. I'm sure that half a page of writing was really good. It wasn't good enough. Okay. Well, I think his tryout dinner or his meal, like at Chez Panisse, when you applied for the job as like a chef or a cook, sometimes people had to make a dinner for like some of the staff people or lunch. And I think there was a, t- like he served something like rolled, like a roulade, like a meat thing. And like Alice got like the piece of string in her portion, but she had, you know, Cause she was actually Alice. One thing about Alice was people don't realize this maybe about her is that she's really a dedicated restaurant owner. Like she would want to be the one to get the cherry pit and her dessert, not a customer. And she would say to me, she's like, better me than a customer.
1: No, no. Alice is exemplary in many ways, Hmm. but you know, I felt bad. My friend Pam Krause did Paul Bertoli's book. And I know from her that it was not such a success.
0: Well, it wasn't, but, you know, I was in an apartment in Paris. My friend's parents died. I was telling you about this. And, you know, they were old. They were, like, in their 90s, French people. And they had, like, six cookbooks. And one of them was, they were all French books. And one of them was the Paul Bertolli, Paul <laughs> book.
1: I'm not The first gonna... book,
0: the Shape and... it was called Chapin, cooking, I think. No, I have it up. Yeah, because he wrote another book by hand. By hand, that's the... the first book. Okay, but the, his... That it was called Chez Panini. Oh, gosh.
1: I will tell you that that's one of the books that I'm not taking to the thrift store. Okay, yeah.
0: Uh, so you read it. It's like Judy Rogers' unique book. Right. Jenny cook, Cafe cookbook. Every word you learn something.
1: I will cook. tell you that his chapter, Paul Bertoli's chapter on yeast, is the most brilliant thing yeah. I have ever read on the subject.
0: About kneading. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's transporting. And he's a beautiful writer.
0: Yeah. He's a really good cook because I yeah. worked with him for hey, a long
1: time. Listen, I felt bad that I didn't publish that book.
0: So I have a question I get asked all the time, and maybe you could answer this, is everybody keeps asking me about metrics. They're like, why aren't American cookbooks in metrics? And why didn't Americans adopt the metric system? And not that I'm any trailblazer, but when I moved to France, I started writing books and metrics and the both systems of measurements. And it's a lot of work. And it's a lot more opportunities for errors. And, you know. And you can't use a chart. Yeah, I mean, I have my own chart. Right. And someone's like, you should publish that. I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> but why, I was told a long time ago, and true or false, they didn't want to have metrics because it made recipes look more complicated.
1: No. Okay. That's, we didn't use metrics because... We're not on the metric system here. Okay. We have miles. We don't have kilometers. Uh We have ounces, pounds. We don't have grams.
0: We do some with doctors use grams.
1: Doctors use grams if somebody is pounding a prescription. Yeah. But that's not our system. It's like saying, why don't we drive on the left side of the road? Mm -hmm. Because we don't.
0: We don't. Well, one thing. Someone said to me, well, Fahrenheit's better for the weather because it's more exact because there's more... You know, but metrics are better for cooking because and as a cookbook author, well, you know, as a baker, especially like when you have to cut a recipe down, like let's say, you know, I make a cake recipe and I was like, oh, this is great, but there's too much batter for the pan. How do I cut this down by 15 or 20 percent? And I'm looking at the recipe and it's like, you know, one and three quarters cups of flour, you know, third of a cup of sugar. Here's another
1: small pan.
0: Well, it's hard to (laughs) tell people that. I mean, you could say, you know, if you have excess, you know, bake it in a small pan. Bake it for three minutes. You know, you have to test that amount. And
1: I am not much of a baker because to me, a baking mistake was always irreparable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like science.
0: This trifle,
1: but the cake does. (laughs) It. It was always to me baking was like some kind of science experiment. Mm -hmm. You couldn't taste it. You couldn't fix it. Uh For the rest of cooking. It doesn't matter. If you're making a stew, Mm -hmm. what difference does it make for an extra gram of something? The only place it does matter is baking. Mm -hmm. And the reason we use cups and tablespoons is because that's our system. Yeah. Well, a lot of people complain that it's
0: not exact, especially like... It isn't. But the great bakers that I know, like Nick Balgeri, Alice Medrich... Dory Greenspan, they use cups and their baking is delicious.
1: That's because they're writing for an American audience.
0: I often tell people too, you know, because people have said, well, your measurement for a cup of flour is different than Rose Levy Burnbaum's versus King Arthur versus Dory Greenspan. And I'm like, I sit there and I measure it and I do that. And I'm like, you know, a teaspoon and a cake isn't going to make a flour one way or the other is not going to make a difference. And I actually saw Rose at an event where Rose Levy Birnbaum once, because she was one of the proponents of using the different systems, being very exact. She goes, yeah, maybe I was a little too nuts. Well, I didn't want to use that word. And I like her a lot, so I don't want to. She's make- the
1: reason I had uh, my Gaganel oven.
0: Yeah. I said,
1: Rose, what should I buy? I need a new oven. And she said, oh, I took to." All my friends' houses who had different brands of yeah. ovens and the now was the best. I said, okay, so I bought the Gaggenau. Not realizing, of course, that I never bake.
0: Okay, Well, I went to the, <laughs> I'm uh, remodeling my kitchen yeah. and I went to their showroom in Paris and like the handle on the refrigerator was wobbly. When they, it's a very expensive refrigerator. The
1: handle on the oven was also wobbly, but well, that was after 27 yeah. years.
0: But I said to them, I said, well, the handle's wobbly. They go, "What's a showroom model. I'm like... Well, this showrooms by appointment only and this is very expensive like why don't you get someone to come in and tighten the hair no yeah because it made me not want to buy yeah. it and i ended up not buying it <laughs>
1: but I, I i don't know why people even bring that up with you about metrics
0: well i'm because i'm i'm supposedly one of the what do you call it the referees or the you know the the cultural but i'm how- supposed to, i'm supposed to explain america to people and french But French, you know, a lot of French recipes, not a lot, but some say, you know, a a wine glass full of milk, you know, or like, you know. Well,
1: that's like Elizabeth David's recipes, which is why I always prefer Julia Child's. I love precise measurements. Mm -hmm. I mean, I myself have written a few cookbooks and I, I'm very careful.
0: Julia Child's Caesar salad, like I never used, I used to make Caesar salads at Chez Panisse all the time when I was a line cook. And I remember I made Julia Childs from her book, from Julia Childs Kitchen. It was perfect. Whatever she, she, she just got it and she figured, you know, and a Caesar salad is not easy because it can't, the dressing can't taste too much of anyone. It's like a cocktail. That's right. It's, you want it to taste like the mix of ingredients, not An oil anchovy or anchovy
1: haters will really get on your case. But you have to have anchovies in a Caesar. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel that anchovies enhance any dish. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Some people hate You know, the thing is, people eat like Worcestershire sauce. That's sort of controversial in a Caesar salad, but there's anchovies in it. Of course. So I've added a little bit of that. So that's what I make. I think she has that in her recipe too. And she says her recipe is the original from the... The Ritz was... No, from the Cardini restaurant, Tijuana. But one thing that was interesting that wasn't... We were talking before we started... We had lunch early about the Julia fictionalized series. series of her life. How Julia actually turned on French food. She at one point just decided she didn't, it was too much working with Simca. She didn't like to be bound by all these rules. French cooking had a lot of rules at the time. Now it's much looser. She really liked America. She was like, we need, you know, she was living here. She left France for good. And so forth. So I, they didn't talk about that in the show.
1: Well, I knew Julia. I mean, everybody in the business knew Julia, yep. and I had dinner at her house several times. Okay, she never cooked once. Either Jacques Pepin was there and he cooked, or Susie Davidson would uh, cook, or somebody. Stephanie was her assistant. Stephanie, she didn't cook. Okay, it was like, well, what am I doing here? You know, I I didn't travel with Junior, but we sometimes ended up in the same place. Uh-huh. Um, and she was, you know, lauded by everybody. But my experience was that after, I think, from Junior Child's Kitchen, everything was done with other people. Mm-hmm. She was just cashing in. Junior Bakes, Junior, then the Master Chefs, Junior, Jacques, I mean...
0: But the TV shows, there was a brilliance. Like she did the one Julia Child and Friends and had like Jacques Pepin.
1: But she was really cashing in. I defer to nobody in my admiration for Julia, Mm -hmm. but she got old and tired and people wanted her to keep producing. Mm -hmm. So she called on her friends to help her produce. Well, I remember when my
0: first book that you edited, Mm -hmm. uh, Room for Dessert, was nominated for an ICP award, which is a cookbook organization. And I was seated in the front of the auditorium by the podium. And my table mates were Julia Child, Graham Kerr, who was the Galloping Gourmet, and Claudia Rodell, and me. So I'm sitting at the table with these three people and and me.
1: Did anybody win?
0: I didn't win. And the next year, I was in the back with my friend (laughs) in the the back of the auditorium again. Like, where is that Julia Child there? (laughs) But she was lovely. She was always wonderful company. Yeah. She came into Chez Panisse several times. And she didn't, she wasn't like a fan of like organic food or no. having a fuss made over her. She was lovely. I talked, um, no one in the kitchen talked to her. As you know, Chez Panisse people come yeah. in the kitchen and talk. No, if people were kind of, oh, Julia Child and, you know, Bill Clinton came in and was like, hey, Bill, how you doing? Julia Child was like leaving her.
1: Um, of course, Alice, who would, I'm sure, be extremely gracious and generous to Julia, her... In the competition between Elizabeth David and Julia, Alice would have supported Elizabeth David.
0: Well, because Elizabeth David was doing something that was more romantic about France and Italy and so forth. And
1: less precise. Yeah.
0: But as cooks in the kitchen, if we had to choose like a chocolate mousse recipe to prepare, it would be Julia Childs because it was, you know, it was a recipe that worked. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Susan. You know, when I started the podcast, you were on the short list of people I wanted to have. And I was thinking, well, I don't know if she'd want to do it or not. But I'm really glad we talked because you have so much to offer.
1: Why, thank you, (laughs) David. So do you.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Susan Friedland, who was the cookbook editor. Director of cookbook publishing at HarperCollins. Okay, the director of cookbook publishing at HarperCollins. Publisher of many amazing cookbooks, including those by Marcella Hassan, Richard Olney, Paula Wolfert, Alice Waters. And you're going to be featured in a new documentary on Marcella. I
1: don't know if I'll be featured, but I will certainly, you'll see me on the small screen.
0: Okay, well, what actually, speaking of Marcella, before we go, you had told me something once that about Marcella. Because people were always saying, remove the green germ from the garlic before using it. And I was talking to you about that. And do you remember what you told me, Marcella?
1: Marcella said, "What is bad about it? It's the fresh new yeah. garlic. Don't remove
0: it." Did she have a glass of Jack Daniels in her hand?
1: Uh, <laughs> more ubiquitous than the Jack Daniels was the cigarette.
0: I just remember I had I was seated next to her at a dinner, and the waiter came over, and it was a big dinner table. And he said, Madame, I'm going to give you some Parmesan cheese. And I just want to let you know, Parmesan is not the stuff in the green can that comes in. She she had like a cigarette in one hand, the Jack did in the other. And she turned and looked at me when he walked away. And I I won't use the F word, but she said, what the F did he just say to me? Do you have time for a sweet Marcello? Yes, yes. Because that was a sweet one. I liked, Um, I tried on her first. I
1: had to go audition. I had to go to Venice so that they could meet me before they did green. To take our wheelbarrows full of money. Uh-huh. uh I published the book. I didn't get a And I flew to Venice on Saturday night. So Saturday morning, I went to the green market mm-hmm. to bring a gift. And I thought, oh, what kind of really typical, <laughs> excuse me, American gift can I bring back? Mm-hmm. There it was before me maple syrup. Oof. So I got a bit <laughs> of that at maple syrup. That I put in my luggage and presented to Marcella. And I said, Marcella, I just wanted to give you something typically American that you can't find here in Italy. And I show her this tin of maple syrup. Well, her disappointment was palpable. <laughs> and she said, The next time you want to bring me something typically American, make it Jack Daniels. <laughs>
0: Well, one of my Italian friends once said, please tell your American friends to stop bringing us maple because <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. And I, it's like, because they don't, you know, like we put it on pancakes, maple syrup, you know, w- waffles and so forth. That's a great story. Right. Well, maybe someday you should do a memoir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm getting editor. And our role. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks again for being on. Thank and- you. Thank you for taking the time. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you want to find me, I'm at davidliebowitz.substack.com. And you can subscribe to my podcast there or in your favorite podcast platform like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye.